Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And if that is you, you are in for a treat because on today's show, we do something a little different. Um, so what this episode is, is actually a webinar that I did with my buddy Bushy from uh, Know How Finance and also the Get Invested podcast, which is an awesome podcast, which you should check out as well. In this episode, we went through a bunch of different stuff that are that are, a bunch of different problems that people are facing that standing in their way of you know getting into the market at the moment, uh, and you know some of its mindset, some of its some of its uh, valid. But we talked about all kinds of things. We talked about you know the market. We talked about affordability, how to find value in a marketplace at the moment. Uh, we talked about you know regionals versus capitals. We talked about things like getting out of your comfort zone and the DIY dilemma, and also. We even talked about the economy and the potential for recession and what that might mean for the property markets. So we covered a lot of ground. The, we actually talked for nearly two hours. So you're going to strap yourself in for this one. And I also want to point out that this was recorded as a webinar. And what that means is that there are a lot of visual aids that go along with this. Now, if you're listening to this in an audio format, I'm, I'm confident you're still going to get value out of this. I think it's still going to be really worthwhile. And we'll probably uncover some nuggets that, um, that you probably didn't know, or maybe even tackle some big problems that are standing in your way right now as well. But I would highly recommend going to our YouTube page and checking out the full episode because we gathered together a bunch of different graphs and charts and all kinds of different stuff that illustrate the points we're making. And I think that they're going to be very illuminating to you. And I really think that you're going to get a lot of value out of doing that. So just head to YouTube and search for The Investor Lab. Check it out there. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty confident you're going to enjoy it. And look, without any any further ado, let's get stuck into it because there is a lot. There's a long episode ahead. Um, it's about an hour and a half to hour and a half to two hours. So let's get stuck into it. I'd love your feedback, and I've, I'd actually really like to know if you enjoy this format. Whether you would like us to do more stuff with visual aids, um, whether you would like uh, you know more interactive content and stuff like that, so let us know. Just send us an email to hello at dashdot.com.au, and that's enough from me. Let's get stuck right into it. I'll see you on the inside. Trading partners. Now, if you're looking for an excuse not to buy a property at the moment, you've never had more reasons to procrastinate. We've seen potential negativity at all ends of the spectrum. We've got the gloomers at one end and we've got the boomers at the other. And if we break that down at one end of the scale, we've got the mainstream media amplifying the fear factory uh, with ongoing 24-7 deluges of negativity and economic gloom given the threat and uncertainty that's currently surrounding the current COVID lockdown saga. At the other end of the spectrum, we're seeing property prices going through the roof, and we haven't seen price growth like this for roughly 20 years, and we're seeing booms in almost 94% of regions, according to recent CoreLogic information, with average growth in the last 12 months of about 16%. And that's against a long-term 25-year average of around about 6%. So what goes with that? A lot of FOMO, a lot of people jumping in willy-nilly. And if you put that together, we've got the perfect storm for analysis by paralysis. So you've never had a better reason not to buy property. But I want to balance that view today because uh, it's really important to separate the fear and the fiction from the facts. 
So to break it down and to really look at what some of the objections are that we, we're starting to hear around the traps, I'm joined by the uh, co-founder of Dashdot Buyers Agents, Goose McGrath. Great to have a chat, mate. Mate, it's awesome. It's good to, it's good to be here. Always enjoy uh, an opportunity to talk to you. And, mate, you hit the nail on the head. I just want to say it. Like, the biggest thing that's going on at the moment, and it's this really funny and interesting dichotomy, right? So things are going good, right? And I actually like this. I just want to point this out. Things are going good. And so people start freaking out and thinking, hang on a second, something might be broken. I know me personally, I, I operate like that. I, I, you know, when things are good, I say, hang on a second, what's about to go wrong? And interestingly, I read a book recently um, called um, Great by Choice, where it actually pointed out that the, the greatest leaders that built the best companies and did all of this kind of stuff, they were the ones that were the most paranoid. They were the ones that actually looked. And But here's the thing, right? It is absolutely, totally cool to go, hang on a second, what's about to go wrong? so that you can find the answers to the risk. Now, fear is usually driven by uh, risk or uncertainty. And so the panacea to risk is not to remove it. It is to understand it. And so I believe that uh, if we can share a little bit of knowledge, we can look at all of these reasons of why you shouldn't buy property investment right now and, and investment property right now, and maybe just bring some, just maybe bring some other perspective to it. Uh, 100% agree. You know, it's, it's the old story of uh, planning for the worst and then expecting the best mm-hmm. and, and using the fear to your advantage to increase your knowledge so that you're in a more comfortable place to then make a, an informed judgment that's really reading the situation as it is, not as other people try to portray it. Totally. Fear is so, a four-letter word, but so is fuel, right? So if you can turn your fear into a fuel, then you're, you're awesome. You're right. Love it, mate. Well, that, that's a that's a great uh, starting point to kick it off. So what I thought we'd do, Goose, is we'll quickly race through the sort of regular objections that uh, we're hearing in the marketplace mm. at the moment. So and, and then we'll break each of those down individually and put some facts into the equation so that uh, people can start to make a more balanced and informed view of where things are really at. Sounds so good. Let, let's kick that off, mate. So uh, taking that on board, uh, one of the first objections I'm hearing is it's all around the market. So, you know, things like, oh, the market's overheated. I'll just have to sit it out and wait until it drops. Or I'm worried that the current boom is going to bust and I'll be left holding the can. Or property prices are at their peak and just can't continue to increase in value long term. So that's a regular exercise. Uh, as you say, when times are good, people are looking for the bad and vice versa. So that's a fairly standard one. The uh, other issue that's getting a lot of commentary is the old affordability chestnut. So, you know, I can't find a good property at the price I can afford to pay. Uh, for you and I, we know that's just not looking hard enough. And we'll show, uh, we'll show, we're going we're to show some facts around all this kind of stuff as well to help eliminate people. So I think this is a good one, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Uh, the, the other one revolves around value. So, you know, I'm, I'm concerned I'll, I'll be paying too much and paying more than the property's worth at the moment, so I'll, I'll just sit out. Uh, we've then got to look at the location misinformation. This is a common one. So, you know, the old but. I don't know, I have to buy in a capital city to get growth. And, and, and that, that traditionally has been the case. Uh, we're dealing in a very different world right now. So I'm looking forward to uh, your thoughts around that, Goose. Mm. Uh, the old comfort zone exercise, uh, and this, this one's regular. You know, most investors live in a house, therefore they think they're an expert on housing and therefore they're just going to buy a house in their local neighbourhood because they can drive past it, see it, feel it, and it's all good. 
really missing the opportunity there. So, you know, that, that objection of I'm not comfortable buying a property in a state or sight unseen unless I've actually physically seen it. So uh, you and I get to see that every day of the week. Mm. Uh, so that's definitely a common one. Uh, next one is the, the old DIY dilemma. So, you know, I can't justify paying a buyer's agent 15 grand or more for something that I can just go out and do myself. It's not that hard. I'll just jump on domain and realestate.com and I'll, mm. I'll go and buy a property. Well, uh, we all know that they're, they're really selling themselves short on that score. The, yep. uh, and the economy, of course, always gets a big Guernsey. So, you know, the, the common stuff I'm hearing at the moment is that, you know, the ongoing COVID lockdowns are going to trigger a recession. So I'll just sit on my savings until COVID's no longer a threat and then I'll, then I'll jump in. So there's, there's a really good, uh, again, from one end of the spectrum to the other, reasons why not. Uh, let's jump into breaking some of those down now, mate. And I know you've done a lot of research around this to support it with some some hard facts on what's happened in the past and, and what's more likely to be happening now and in the future. So mm-hmm. let's let's start off with with the market, mate, and uh, yeah. and get stuck right into that in terms of uh, these concerns around the market being overheated or that the boom's going to bust or the property prices are at their peak and can't continue. So uh, I'll, I'll sort of flick it in your direction, mate. Now to start, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's a, I think it's a really good conversation to have because you know, like the 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 common things, as you said, you know, the market's overheated. I'm going to sit it out and wait till it drops. You know, I'm worried that the current boom's going to bust, and you know, I'm going to be left holding the can. And they think you know all of this kind of stuff, and that property prices are at their peak and they're never going to continue to grow, right? So uh, it's really interesting. Um, it's a really interesting thought. Uh, exercise that people or thought bubble that put, people put themselves into because at the end of the day, there is no one market. I mean, yes, you can collect all of the property prices all around Australia and create a chart that says national median house price. But in actuality, there's 15,264 suburbs in Australia and every single one of them has unique economic characteristics. You know, this isn't just Sydney versus Melbourne versus Brisbane. This is, you know, even in a regional centre, like, I don't know, like Terrelgan, near where I grew up, Terrelgan's got about seven or eight different suburbs and every single one of those suburbs is a little different. And then you go down to a sub below that, even to, you know, less than a suburb, they've even got more. So, so there is no one market, right? And the, the thing about waiting, right, this this kind of like, whoops, I'm not really sure what's going to happen is it's got a huge opportunity cost attachment right, to it. And what I think people fail to really calculate when they're sitting in this position is what is the real cost of opportunity? Like what is the actual real cost? Now, if you were to buy... If you were to buy a property, you know, if you were planning to buy a $500,000 property and it grows at an average of 6% a year and you were to wait out of the market for six months, you're losing you're losing a couple of grand a month in potential growth, right? And so you can break that down. I did some maths on it recently. And on a $500,000 property, if you're sitting around doing nothing, it's costing you about $100 a day, right? Now, do you really, are you like, would you sign up for a gym subscription at 100 bucks a day or Netflix at 100 bucks a day? Probably not. Like it's not chump change. So I think that's something that we should be considering as well. But yeah, let's get into it. Well, I absolutely agree. And to add some further colour to what you've just mentioned there, I uh, did a similar breakdown myself a little while back and looked at you know someone who delayed investing by 10 years because there was always a reason why now wasn't the, the right time. And on a $400,000 property held over 20 years, delaying that by 10 years actually breaks down at an average growth rate to about four and a half grand a week. 
that they are missing out on equity growth, mate. So uh, that that delayed decision, uh, time is either going to be your biggest friend or your worst enemy uh, in in relation to getting the sorts of results that you're trying to achieve out of property. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's a good one, mate. So uh, let's put some colour around that. Yeah. So, look for those of you who are listening to this on audio. We've got a we've got a graph here that shows the, the median house price house price by city. For simplicity's sake, it's by you know by the capital. So Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, Canberra, and Hobart since March nineteen eighty. Now, the important thing when you're looking at this graph is is to notice a couple of things. Over the long term, minor fluctuations are irrelevant. What most people don't realise is that. The property that property prices do fluctuate, just like the share market. You know, if you actually look at a chart of uh, a graph of uh, property prices, they go up and down all over the place, just like shares do, albeit on a slightly slower timeline. They're not as volatile, right? Yeah. And so, but what you need to do is you need to look at the trends and and if you look at if you look at it over you know the last 20 30 40 years it's got a continuous upward trending bias now the reason for that because a lot of people think oh but it can't keep going up can it well the reason for that is because we operate in a keynesian economic system and part of the keynesian economic law is that is that you know the economy has to continuously inflate right and that's why they want to have target inflation rates uh, because otherwise we get into this whole thing called the uh, you know the paradox of thrift but that's a whole another that's a whole another that's a whole another discussion now the interesting thing about the chart we've got on the screen is that it shows some pretty significant catalyst events where people thought, oh, this is going to be it. Everything's going to crash and burn and that's it. It's all over. You know, negative gearing being removed in 1985 and then reinstated and then the recession in 1991 and then the Asian financial crisis in 1997 and 98. September 11 didn't really do anything to house prices here. Now, the GFC, to be fair, there is a dip after the GFC, broadly speaking, um, and that was because it was a significant and major economic event that had a lot, that caused a lot of fear. But the bounce back once people got out of that, got out of their own way was tremendous as well. So I think the, the, what I want to take away from this is to try and illustrate the point that we have been in these kind of crises before, right? We have been in, in times where property prices have been booming and people thought it can't possibly go any higher, but they do. And also we've been in situations where there's been major international, global, you know, economic events and property prices still go up. Now, that's not to say they don't also go down. They do, right? But what we want to look at is playing a, a, a longer term, a longer term game. And the way that I think about it as well is like for for the people that are sitting there, sitting on their hands, going, "No, no, no, I'm going to wait for it to be cheaper or some other thing." It's like all you need to do is go rewind back to 1990. If you could go back in time and buy how many and buy properties in 1990, how many properties would you buy? Knowing what you know now, how many houses would you buy? You'd buy all of them. You'd do everything you could to just buy all of them, right? And we're sort of in the similar in a similar position here. And it's the same thing that everyone's been saying for decades. They can't keep going up. I'll just wait. They can't keep going up. I'll just wait. And I'm on the receiving end of meeting with people who are now in their, you know, 50s and even 60s saying, I just wish I'd started sooner. And so I get to see, see both the people getting started now and also the people at the end going, oh, my God, I actually didn't do it and I wish I did. Absolutely right. And the important thing that I think underlines our discussion today, Goose, is that uh, property investing to be successful is a long-term game. And, and what, yep. what I mean by long-term, it's at, at a minimum of 15 years. And, and why do I say a minimum of 15 years? Because those property cycles that we speak about, the property clock mm. or the property cycle, where we'll see a, a spurt of growth and then a, a long period of plateauing or even a slight, slight drawback and then mm. another spike of growth, 
to be safe, you need to be into property for a minimum of 15 years. And uh, the, the good news about that is if you're taking a 15-year or more view of the exercise, then trying to buy at the bottom and, and sell at the top doesn't matter so much because you'll go through a full cycle over that that duration. The, the other thing that, that's worth sort of uh, uh, complementing uh, the, the graph that uh, you're talking through in, in relation to the impact of major global crises on, on property values is the about the only time that we've seen significant drawbacks, and they're only temporary, is when the taps turned off as far as the access to credit is concerned. And in other words, uh, when it's hard to borrow money because yeah. uh, the access to money is a, a massive driver. So, you know, property is definitely a game of finance. And you mentioned the GFC earlier. Uh, yeah. The reason why the, there was a drawback after the GFC is that uh, interest rates went through the roof and money got hard to get. The banks backed away from lending money. That turned off the tap of demand, which had an impact on uh, prices then uh, coming back somewhat. So the only yeah. times, and, and that, that similarly, when we saw the Royal Commission on Banking and, and prior to that, when APRA and uh, ASIC really got stuck into the banks around uh, lending policies and really got them to pull on the handbrake, that's when we saw calming. So the only time you need to be concerned around uh, what's likely to be happening in property is the flow of money. So, uh, and, and we'll talk a little bit about, about that uh, later in the discussion, mate. So no, that's 100%. brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. So uh, sort of moving on from there, the uh, if I can uh, get the graph to work now, uh, if we're looking at, uh, you know, what an overheated market looks like, Goose. So yeah. walk us through that. Yeah, totally. So the graph we've got on the on the screen at the moment, this is um, this is actually uh, from our internal, you know, data analysis that we've built in, in-house here. So a lot of people are concerned that the property markets are overheated. Now, the reason for that is because most of the media focuses on places like Sydney and Melbourne. And the reason that most of the media focuses on places like Sydney and Melbourne is because that's where the that's where the biggest centralization of the population is. And so that's where the news is most relevant, et cetera. So it kind of makes sense. But the problem with that is that it gives you a really biased perspective of what's going on. Now, yeah. I will go on record as saying I think that the Sydney market is overheated, right? And that's illustrated by this graph here, which shows Bondi Beach, um, the suburb, has gone from from the start of the year has gone has risen in price by 35 percent it's gone from 2.8 million median house price to 3.8 million median house price in four months right which is almost a vertical line when you look at the when you look at the trend line graph it's almost a vertical line now when do you spend as much time looking at data as I do? When you see something like that, <laughs> that that's what you call an anomaly and that's not something you want to look for. Now just to Quick point though, if you could actually work out how to get in just before that was to happen, hey, hallelujah, happy days, right? And we can kind of talk about that in a little minute as well. But you sort of you've sort of got to look at what are what are also the the drivers and what are the trends and all of that kind of stuff. And I would suggest that in the Sydney market, it is a little overheated, and you can and you can see that by the drastic and significant upward spike. And I think that it's likely that either the market will maybe not in the next month or two months, but that the market will either do two things, plateau until the until it reverts to the mean or pull back until it reverts to the mean because that's what it will do ultimately is it'll revert to the mean. Yeah, totally. It's a bit like a compressed spring 
we, we've yep. seen uh, a lot of compression on that spring because of COVID's impact on people just aren't able to sell properties or, the, or there's enough uncertainty for them to sit out of the game. Uh, w- once that's opened up and then we poured the petrol on the exercise with the stimulus money and the, the, the cheap, cheap interest rates, then we're seeing this rebound, uh, hmm. which, which will find its equilibrium uh, over time. So what we're seeing now is certainly not uh, representative, but it's not unexpected either in terms of totally. where it's at and where it's heading. Now, brilliantly said. All right. Uh, let, let's sort of uh, look a bit further then in terms yeah, let's, of let, let's keep let's keep pumping through because there's a few there's a few things because a few things attached to that right. So as I said, if you could work out how to get into the market before the boom, then that would be awesome, right? And that's kind of the thing. Like the secret really is to understand where and when to enter different markets. And it's no good just saying where, like, I don't know, Sydney's a good market, but the other key part of that is when. Um, and so if we jump onto the the next slide, Wishy. So often people, anyone who's heard me talk uh, before, I talk a lot about the holy trinity of property, right? And when we talk about the holy trinity of property, we're talking about properties that are in high growth areas that are cash flow positive and with value add potential, right? But uh, what we actually want to look to talk about today is what is the holy trinity of location selection, right? And really, there are obviously a lot of different uh, aspects to to. There's a lot of you know, there's a lot of science and stuff that goes into it. But it cooks down to some very simple characteristics: jobs, lifestyle, and affordability. Right? That that particularly right now in today's housing market, they are the three things that are driving that are driving growth. Now, interesting look at Bondi Beach. Now, I live here, right? And I can tell you, I can tell you that. Um, there are no there are no major new infrastructure projects. There is no new uh, initiatives that are driving more jobs. Um, it's got lifestyle, right? But it's not got the affordability. It's just jumped by thirty five percent, right? And there's no fundamental change in the location. So what that says to me is that the boom isn't sustainable. Like the spe- specifically, the sharpness of the current boom is isn't sustainable. Yep, property the market is still going to go up over time, but that says to me it's more of an anomaly because you're not underpinned by fundamentals. Um, yeah, yep. good read. So, what when we were talking about getting you know, the where and the when on how to get in, into into different markets, and Bushy, you touched on it a moment ago uh, about the cycles, right? And so, as you said, you know, if you can be in a market for 15, 15 years at least, you're likely to pick up two cycles. Now, markets do move in cycles. The timing does differ, right? But anyone who thinks Sydney prices just only go up is sorely mistaken, right? Because they also go down and sideways and do all these other kind of things as well. So every single market in Australia goes through this cycle pattern. For those of you who um, who are just listening and not watching this, we've got a graph on the screen which shows uh, the average growth rate as a as a as a linear median median um, you know uh, a, a straight line basically, but it also shows the cyclical nature of property prices uh, relative to the average growth rate. And, now, and the- yeah, just just to verbally describe that, it's it looks like an S curve. So if we if you're listening mm-hmm. to this, imagine an S curve where the, mm-hmm. the bottom of that S uh, is fairly flat for between five to eight years on average. Mm-hmm. It, it varies by location. There's no set rule on this, but between five and eight years. And mm-hmm. then we see this sharp sp- upward spike, yep. uh, which normally goes between sort of three to five years on average. And, mm-hmm. and then it plateaus again, and it goes through the, the, the flat 
flat desert stage and then you'll see this spike in, in growth. Exactly. So you- yeah. The way that I the way that I explain it is that a lot of people talk about the property clock and I know you do as well, but the thing about when people think about a clock is they think it's a circle, right? They think it goes up and down and round and round. It's actually more like a staircase, right? As yes. you say, it goes a little flat and then it goes up and then it goes across and then it goes up and then it goes across. And look, the across often does have a little bit of a down dip as well, right? Um, but the point is you want to work out how to get in at the at the foot of the stair. Like how do you get how do you get in right before it starts to go up um so the interesting thing about that just jump to the next slide as well um is that rents typically work in a in an antithetical phasing to property prices because what tends to happen is that as we talked about jobs get you know jobs are one of the drivers lifestyle affordability people will move to a location because they're attracted by jobs and opportunity and prosperity they'll rent first because they haven't lived there before they don't know where they want to live and what the good location is rents go up rental demand increases then as rent increases start to go up too high people start thinking hang on a second is it worth continuing to rent should i buy and then they start buying houses that pushes up property prices etc. And so it's a virtuous cycle that feeds into itself. And so it ends up being like a bit of a snake that swims past itself over and over again. And so if you can get the timing right, which is on the next slide there, if you can get the timing right, you can actually target getting into the right markets at the right place at the right time to capture both uh, a maximum rent cycle and also a pre-boom property cycle. And this this is the secret, right? Because anyone who thinks that you can't time markets, I, I sort of say to them, well, just it doesn't matter. Just go buy anywhere then. Just doesn't matter. Just, just, buy, <laughs> buy anything, just buy anything and just whatever, move on. Um, but if you're actually interested in trying to work out, okay, when and where and how can I make sure I'm not buying it in the wrong part in the cycle, there is a process to it. And we call this the gold, finding the Goldilocks zone. Yep, yep. Brilliant. So now back to back to how do we like so so a lot of people then are thinking okay so we've got all this you know overheated markets and you know which should isn't everywhere just going off and is it isn't it just unsustainable and all of that kind of stuff well no so as we pointed out some places probably are unsustainable because they're not yeah. underpinned by solid fundamentals so yeah. not just Bondi Beach but you know let's just say for example there's maybe there's a, a coastal town which is beautiful and it has the lifestyle factor and maybe everyone's moved there oh my god I've got to get out and I moved there. they've all moved there and the property prices have gone up but Let's look at the other factors. If it doesn't also have jobs, like a continuous pipeline of sustainable employment opportunity in that location, right? And or and also affordability, it's probably not going to be sustainable. So the graph we've got on the screen at the moment, I've deliberately taken the um, the suburb name off this because this is actually uh, a location. We're actually the location we're currently actually buying in, and yep. this illustrates this illustrates a couple of things. It illustrates the cycles that we've been talking about. Yep. So what we can see on the graph here is that between 2001 and 2010, or actually from 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 about November 2001 to November 2009, so over eight years, the property prices in this area grew by 340 percent in eight yep. years, which is epic, right? Yeah. Imagine if you imagine if you got in in November 2001, right? You're yeah. laughing. Yeah. But putting some context around that, we're talking about a, an eighty thousand dollar property in uh, 2001. Which by mm. just before the GFC is grown to about two hundred and fifty odd grand. Now, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, that's a, a low base, but but it's a very achievable one. And and I've got properties myself who that that had followed exactly that. I, I bought a, a property uh, in the late nineties for eighty four grand. Mm-hmm. Uh, current Val, I've still got that property. Current Val is uh, about six fifty. 
And uh, yes, awesome. that's been that's been twenty two odd years or thereabouts. Mm. But uh, it it reinforces exactly what you're saying there, mate. Yeah, hundred percent. But then that massive growth spurt is also followed by ten years of flat. Now that's really common, <laughs> and yep. so a lot of a lot of what what happens with a lot of people though is that they they look for places that are already booming to go look. It's booming. This is where it booms. And they use that to validate their current assessment. And often when you're looking at the start of a next cycle, which is, again, underpinned by those three characteristics we talked about, jobs, jobs. A, a future, like not just current jobs, but a future pipeline of continuous employment that's going to drive economic prosperity in the area, current affordability and lifestyle desirability, right? That's when you can start to then identify where these market movements are heading in the right direction. An example of a place... Um, that has you know loads of jobs prospects and stuff like that would be I don't know Port Hedland in WA but guess what not exactly a lifestyle location so so again that kind of falls apart so you're gonna look at all these different characteristics uh, yeah. and when we start to layer these things over that's when you can start to really pick the next cycle or you know in different locations that that are starting and how to get in right at the ground level. Yeah, spot on. Yeah, very well said, mate. Excellent. Okay, uh, now uh, the old demand supply equation, mate. Let's let's put some colour around that. Well, this is that exact same suburb, right? This is the exact same suburb. So what we've got at the moment, uh, for those of you listening, is we've got a graph which shows two uh, digressing lines. You know, they're getting further apart from each other from the period of May 2018 up until up until basically now. Now, what's interesting is that this is the supply to demand ratio in the suburb of the graph that we just looked at showing at the start of the next boom. And what you can see is that there's a continuously widening gap between the current demand for property and the current available supply. At, at the moment, it's about four times more demand than there is supply and it's continuing to increase. Now, when you look at longer term trends, not like, hey, we all went into lockdown last year, quick, there's a massive property spike. But when you look at sustainability, you need to look at, okay, has this is this a trend that's been pre, you know, some fluctuation in the market? I mean, that's what we can see here consistently that 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 this particular market is, you know, is growing, you know? Yeah. And and that's and that 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 is the single biggest underpinner of property price growth. Yeah, well, it, it's it, it, no rocket science. Is it? It's about scarcity. It, it's that hmm. uh, how much demand versus how much supply. And you've got you've got significantly high demand and and not much supply. Then you you've got an area that's going to go up in value. And conversely, if you've got the opposite, then the opposite holds true. Hmm. So uh, yeah, yep, beautifully said. Okay, so th- that's covered off that really well. Let, let let's sort of move now into the affordability concerns and the old, you know, the objection I'm hearing a lot at the moment is that I just can't find a good property at the price that I can afford to pay. So I'll just sit out and wait. Yeah, which is a classic, right? Because because like I read I read a media article uh, I read a media article last week that the national median house price is nine hundred and fifty five thousand dollars. And so when you read, when people read that kind of that stuff in the media, which, you know, we're a property mad nation. So it's in every paper in the country and every, you know, you can't go past uh, property news. People think, oh my God, that means that property prices are $955,000 everywhere. And so, so naturally, it skews your perspective. Now, I can tell you, I, I live in Bondi Beach. And we've just pointed out that the median house price here is about three point eight million, right? It's, I don't own in Bondi Beach, just to be clear. I rent, right? I'm a rent investor. <laughs> um, but, but the, but it also the inverse is true. And I think one of the things that people don't understand is that that you can actually buy affordable properties, but 
not only that, that they can actually be good investments, right? Because a lot of people think, well, yeah, sure, maybe I can buy a cheap property, but it's probably not going to be any good, right? It's probably not going to do what I want it to do. Um, and yeah, I thought I'd just grab three quick examples. We buy this, yeah. this kind of stuff all the time. I thought I'd grab three quick examples just to just to show like some broadly speaking what that can look like yeah, with d- different entry points. D- just before I jump into that, because I, I just want to talk to your point around medium house prices, because yeah. I get very frustrated by them, Goose, because they, <laughs> they're always sending the wrong message. And it's very convenient for economists and the mainstream media to jump on on medium house prices because it enables them to create this notion of a property market, which you and I don't know doesn't exist because every property is different, every street's different, every suburb's different. Yeah. So there's different dynamics happening at that level all the time. So there's no comparing apples with apples or a perfect market scenario like we're talking about in shares and equities, mm. but it's just convenient for uh, data analysts and economists to try and group this together. And to, mm. to really illustrate this point around the medium exercise, if I had three properties that sold, one, one sold for a million, one sold for 900,000, and one sold for 100,000, the medium price is 900,000. <laughs> so it's not even an average. It's, it's, they, they look at those three and the one in the middle is mm. the medium house price. So what, what that does is, in most cases, absolutely skews what's actually happening on the ground at an individual property basis. So I just want to make make that commentary because anyone who focuses on medium prices, whether it be medium uh, prices of the property or medium rents, is no, no different on the medium rent scenario, yeah, yeah. Uh, can really uh, scare yourself unnecessarily because it's not really telling you what's happening at the micro level. Yeah. So, so in the, with that context, a great, great segue then into uh, giving us some actual living examples of what's actually happening on the ground. So, uh, let's talk us through that. Totally. So, and again, these are just illustrated. You know, these are just to illustrate the point. These are properties that we actually bought for clients. Now, to be completely transparent, you know, we bought these. You know, all of these within sort of the last twelve months. Um, uh, but they're still representative of the prices and the returns and everything you can get exactly today. So that's why I used them, not because they were um, cherry-picked or anything like that, but because they are a genuine, fair representation of what is currently able to be done in the market at the moment. So um, what we've got on the screen at the moment is, uh, is you know, Gabrielle and Cheyenne, a, a couple of our clients, they've bought a property for $265,000, right? So a lot of people think you can't buy properties for under 300 grand, right? So this was bought for uh, $265,000, renting at 330 a week. So that's a 6.5% gross yield. Vacancy rate in the area is 0.7%, so less than 1%. Yep. Um, yes, it's cash flow positive. Now, based on their loan structure, it wasn't very cash flow positive, right? But it was still in, in good nick. Um, and it grew by 5.8% in six months. And uh, that was and that was the last time we looked at it. And then not only that, this property is actually on about uh, 1,800 square meters. So you can do a three-lot subdivision and a, a, a granny flat. So it's a bit of a bit of a screamer. But that's just to illustrate the point that you can get properties at $265,000 that grow and grow quickly and also produce positive cash flow and are a really great investment. And, and yeah, and has the value-add component that you've mentioned exactly. as well. So it's ticking all the boxes in that golden, uh, the holy trinity that... Uh, Exactly. Yep. Yeah, br- beautiful. Okay, that's a great example. Uh, let, let's have yep. a look at another one. Yeah, and so again, this is a – and so the reason I kind of picked these price points is because broadly speaking, they're kind of like 
you know, some really interesting tranches. So we sort of looked at something around the 250 to 300. This property here is $420,000. So that's in the sort of, you know, the 400 to 500 kind of tier category. Uh, now this is renting at $510 a week. This one's in, a- in Adelaide, actually, uh, yep. just in the north of Adelaide, a really nice, nice spot there. So that's um, that's that's grown by four point two percent in three months. It's actually we actually just got a valuation done on that, and I should have updated it. It's grown by about twelve uh, percent now in in the last six months, which is pretty awesome. And that's renting at five hundred and ten dollars a week on a six point three percent yield. And again, this is on a very large block that you can do a five lot subdivision on it later on, and it's a dual lock as well. So again, that's now you know the median house price nine hundred and fifty five thousand dollars, and this is four twenty right, and producing you know a solid return. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not not great example. Talk to us about Charlie and Bianca's uh, opportunity. Yeah, well, Charlie and Bianca have bought a number of properties like this. And I'll just grab this one because it's another good um, kind of average price point is really what I wanted to point out. This property here was $620,000. Again, so we've sort of gone around about two fifty dollars to $300,000, know, $400,000 to $500,000. And then this is in the sort of $600,000, $700,000 kind of category. Uh, and this one at the time was renting at $900 a week. It's like rents have actually just gone up a little bit on this property. But at purchase, it was $900 a week. So it's a 7.5% yield. And based on their loan structure, it was pumping out about uh, $14,354 of cash flow. And over eight months has grown by 17.7%. Um, that's actually on the Central Coast, right? Now, yeah, nice. Now that should hopefully let people know that it's not. And these again, these are these are gen, genuine examples of stuff that you can get. This is not cherry picked to try and prove a single point, but hopefully this kind of illustrates to people that you can actually get uh, achieve real estate investing success at different price points. Yeah, particularly in the moment where we really are seeing uh, the traditional metrics and the traditional uh, myths almost now that they are becoming of, you know, you've got to be close to the CBD to achieve any sort of growth. We, we're seeing uh, COVID has really had a, made a paradigm shift in the way mm. people now want to live. So they want safety, they want security, and they want space. Mm. And providing there's the infrastructure supporting that, and I'm, when I say infrastructure, I'm not only talking about roads and rail and, and the, the normal exercise, I'm also talking about technology in terms of access to uh, the internet and the uh, that side of the equation. If you've got those that then give you a lifestyle exercise, suddenly we've, we've gone from, you know, what Bernard Salt likes to refer to as the as the fried egg where you've got the the yolk with the concentration around the city and then the sort of white spreading out to a mm. situation now where we've got scrambled eggs, <laughs> where we've got uh, regional nodes that have got all those lifestyle factors, the job, job uh, closeness that we're talking about uh, that are really starting to shift the way people are moving. So uh, getting the sort of price points that you've just illustrated to us is actually uh, much easier than many people anticipate, and and providing those regions have got the critical mass, mm. they are have have the opportunity to enjoy the sustained growth that has uh, often been attributed as missing in yep. some of the the regional exercise, and and a lot of people have been scared by the whole resource sector exercise where everyone jumped into mining towns. Uh, mm. And then saw the property values plummet because it was all based around one industry. I, yep. I know for sure that uh, with the work that you do with Dash Dot Goose, you're you're looking at regions that have a diversity of 100%. employment growth in association with that infrastructure that's going to to support ongoing growth and sustainability uh, of the performance of those properties as a consequence. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I just kind of want to just a couple of points on on everything you just said. So everyone thinks of like capital cities versus regionals, but what they don't realise is that you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's 15,264 suburbs in Australia. Most of them are not in places like Melbourne and Sydney. You know, we live in a very yeah. big country, you know, and when we talk about regional centres, when people hear regional, what they typically think is tiny country town. When we, But when we talk about regional centres, we're talking about, you know, cities, hubs, multiple yeah. suburbs, decent population, diverse economies, you know, all yeah. of this kind of stuff. And, um, and I'm interested to get into the, we'll talk about the capital cities versus regionals in a minute, but um, but I think, uh, you know, the other point that I would make around this kind of the pricing thing, the affordability, is a lot of people have got this uh, ill-conceived idea, largely because they, you know, they still have a belief that Sydney is the best place for property price growth and stuff like that. Um that you have to spend heaps of money to get a decent investment property. I would actually counter that and I would say you're actually probably going to get better investment properties at a slightly lower price point for a variety of reasons because you'll still get significant and in many cases better growth and also you can couple that with affordability and cash flow, right? And so you can actually – so you rather than buying one or two properties, you're going to be able to buy you know, three, four, five properties and achieve your goals. So I would actually argue that not only is it possible, I would say it is preferable to take a slightly lower uh, lower price point view. When I say, say lower price point, I'm talking $200,000 to $800,000, broadly speaking. Yeah, no, well said. And it, and also by doing so, it gives the opportunity to build in some diversity so you haven't got mm-hmm. all of your property eggs in one basket and therefore exactly. reliant on what's happening in that one location. So, uh, yeah. no, that, very well said, mate. Okay, so let, let's jump to the, the next objection that we're hearing around value and that, that old uh, exercise of, oh, I'm concerned I'm going to pay too much and pay more than the property's worth at the moment. Uh, what, what are yeah. your thoughts on that? Well, it's super common and I totally get it. Like a lot of people are like, is it too late? Am I already too late? I have, haven't prices already boomed, you know? <laughs> like, and in fact, I actually have one of our, one of the guys on our team. Um, he was, you know, some of the areas that we are buying in have started to grow. And he was like, oh my God, but the prices have started to grow. Oh, no, isn't it too late? And I had to show him, you know, they've grown by about five to 10% and the market's probably still got about, you know, 70, 80, 100% still to move. So there's still plenty of room to grow. But it's a natural concern for people to have where they say, you know, is, is the, I'm already too late. I think it's already too late. And what I kind of want to dig into here is to show that it isn't, it's not as simple as that. Some places you're going to be too late. Yeah. <laughs> Some places you're going to be buying at the peak of the market. And we could, we could list dozens of them. And basically, if you're hearing about it in the media, uh, it's already probably already too, too late. late. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it is probably exactly. the wrong time to buy. Um, but no, I, I'm, I'm really interested to get into this bit. Yeah. Yeah. Great, mate. Well, let, let, let's sort of underpin that by uh, the, the great quote that you've uh, uh, reinforcing here from the world's greatest living investor, Warren Buffer. Yeah. Well, where, more, specif- uh, more specifically, he's a value investor, right? And yes. this, is, this is, I think, where, um, that, where a lot of people sort of need to get a little bit more granular. Like, what you want to look at is what's called value investing. Now, Benjamin Graham kind of invented the value investing uh, methodology. He's the one that taught Warren Buffett. And it's really, it's really simple, right? Buy stuff when it when it when it's affordable, it makes sense, and it's less than its net present value, right? Um, yeah. And we'll kind of get into that because I think it's a really interesting thing that people don't understand. Because a lot of people say things like, "Well, you can't buy under market value because market value is whatever the purchase price in the market currently is." 
which is just holistically not true because otherwise what you would you would you would have is you would only have you'd have prices that only went up and never went down yeah. uh, and all you need to do is look at the share market look at property markets look at any of the data and you'll see that they go up and down which indicates that sometimes people pay more than it's worth and sometimes people pay less than it's worth and the thing about this is that it's actually a bit of a, a fractal uh, view and so fractal is a um a, a repeating pattern that is self-similar on different scales, right? So when we talk about this ability to get it uh, at uh, at above or below or at its net present value or its intrinsic value, that applies to properties, that applies to suburbs, that applies to regions. That so and it goes all the way out, and so you can start to identify that on a on a fractal level and zoom in. So. Yeah, no, and, and you're absolutely right, mate. It's uh, it's it, value is the key. It's not not cost or what you pay that's important here. It's it's what is the value and what's the likely future value mm. that uh, needs to be the starting point. So uh, you've got a great graph on screen here. Talk us, paint a ver- verbal picture of what that looks like and what that's telling us. Yeah, totally. So kind of like what I was just saying, right? So what you have, uh, you, there's two lines on this graph. Uh, so the X and Y axis are price one way and time the other. Now, from a market price perspective, what you'll see on the graph is a lot of fluctuation. It goes up and it goes down and then it goes up really quickly and it goes down a little bit and then up again and down again and all of this kind of stuff. And it's and it shows the natural peaks and troughs that happen in any any asset class, like you'd probably see the same kind of charts if you're looking at, you know, rare collectible paintings, right? They go up and they go down based on all kinds of different factors, um, psychographic factors, economic factors, all kinds of different stuff. Uh, underpinning that is a more consistent trend line, which actually doesn't isn't as volatile, doesn't go up as down as much, and actually follows a much more consistent pattern. And that's what we look at intrinsic value. Or another way to put that is net present value, right? What is the asset actually worth? Um, now, when you can understand what the asset is actually worth, and again, this this graph applies to, or the illustration that this, this points to applies to suburbs and regions as well as actual specific properties. But once you can underpin what is the actual fair value of that area, property or whatever, then you can start to see is it overpriced or underpriced. And I think that it's a really important thing for any, any every investor should be a value investor because no investor should be paying more than what a property is worth. <laughs> Spot right. on. And I think the one of the analogies I like to use here is that we are so caught up with the, the instantaneous now at the micro level. Uh, there's mm. so much noise. There's so much information now uh, that, that can be used very cleverly by the mainstream media in particular, to scare the living mm. crap out of us. But if we're taking that micro view, what we need to do is is step back to the other side of the room and, and look at it from afar and and recognise that the the fluctuations that we're seeing, the roller coaster ride, if you like, in, in terms of the, the micro, is driven by supply on one side, demand on the other, but also it's, it, it's thrown out a kilter by the confidence area mm. so the sentiment that that surrounds it in terms of people's perception so what we want to be doing is stepping away from the herd and not following the perception of the herd but if we're standing back far enough and we're looking at an intrinsic value line rather than the the aberrations that are mm. that are uh, pulsing through as a consequence then we're in a much better objective position to make a judgment on where things are really at what that intrinsic value is and how does that lie in terms of is it an opportunity now and where is it going to in the future? So uh, 
Well said on that, mate. So uh, let's break it down then. So you've you mentioned about intrinsic value and the importance yeah. of trying to assess what property value is. Uh, you, you've totally. turned this How do you into work a, it out? Yeah, I mean, and you've turned this into a science. So uh, yeah. uh, for without getting into the complexities, because I know you've got over 147 different due diligence measures that you use to analyse the, the position of yeah. a property, uh, hit us with the main ones that are going to uh, give us a, a, a sense totally. of confidence around what a value is. Well, regardless of what we do internally, um, most people don't have access to the things that we have access to. So what I wanted to do here is just say, okay, well, how, like, what are ways that you can actually try and understand this? You know, if you don't have data scientists and all kinds of stuff, like, and you can't assess markets the way that we can do it, that's fine. So there's some simple ways you can do it. And um, yeah, so there's, you can do what on online AVMs, that's an automatic uh, valuation uh, metric. And so you can do that if you go onto banks' websites or if you've got access to things like RP data and stuff like that. And, and what that'll do is that's basically an algorithm that says, yep, yeah, look, the, based on a whole bunch of you know data in the background, here's an automatic spit out. It's probably something like that. Now, I want to point out none of these are actually accurate, and I'll get to that in a minute. And, and they're all a bit they're all a bit rear vision mirror. So in a rapid rising market like we're in today, getting mm. a, an AVM or an auto automated valuation uh, model on a particular property is is probably pinning what the price was worth three months ago, not what it is totally. today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's got a ninety day reverse attribution window. So you can get that kind of stuff, but. I had to give you an idea, but it probably won't tell you what the truth is, right? Another way that you can look at what is the property value is to do you can do, you can do a historical comparative sales analysis. Now, typically, that's rear view looking again, where you would look at the last three months and you'd say, hey, what are the similar properties? And you do a comparison and go, okay, this property, what's good, bad, different? And what are the differentiations? And try and derive some viewpoint on that. But again, in a fast moving market, that doesn't really work. So then you've sort of got to do all of these. I just want to point this out so you can form an opinion. But then you can do what's called a current comparable listing analysis where you can then go, okay, well, now I've looked at what's happened in the past. What are all of the similar properties that are currently for sale? And that'll give you a temp check. That'll give you a different number to go, okay, well, okay, so that's what people are trying to sell them for. There's another thing that can be wound in there, which is average vendor discounting rate, but we won't get into that. Yeah. And then, and, and even another way that you can then start, so th these are all checkpoints that none, none of these are correct, right? I just want to point out none of these are correct. No. So, you, But you need to form an opinion, right? Because beauty or value is in the eye of the beholder, right? Now, one of the other things you can look at is you can look at rates notices. Rates notices will tell you what the land value, unimproved land value is, and also um, what the capital value of the of the property on top is. Right? Yep. That's another thing you can do. Then you can get an independent agent appraisal. So perhaps you're, you know, you know, maybe you know a property manager, or you're talking to a property manager about potentially being the property manager. Potentially, you could get someone from their independent agency to go, hey, how much do you think this is worth? Could you give me an independent appraisal based on your knowledge of the market as well? That'll give you a third person's perspective. Um, yeah. Then you can also speak to you know mortgage broker or something and say, hey, is there any chance we can order a desktop valuation for this property? Can we get another viewpoint? Now, also just want to point out on that, that there's 432 lenders in Australia, and I haven't seen a single one of them that will produce the same number. Right? But so I'm, I'm telling you, and I can give, give you a current example. Uh, we our, our mortgage breaking business uh, deals with uh, regularly with about 40 of those those lenders. Uh, the the range of variation on exactly the same property at exactly the same time. Mm. Uh, you know, on a, a four hundred thousand dollar property. 
Mm. Uh, we've seen variations of eighty to a hundred thousand mm. on on that property in terms of what they think it's worth. So yeah. it's uh, it, this is like throwing a dart at a board. Yeah, like twenty five percent variation is not going to give you. You want to pay twenty five percent over or under on a property, right? So. Um, but you can order the valuations. That'll give you another viewpoint, right? Uh, and then, of course, you can get licensed valuers in as well. But I've got to say, my experience using licensed valuers, it's it's not be- not any better than using the banks, right? So yep. um, w- what this comes down to, though, is for trying to form an opinion about what actually is the current net present value of an asset and then deriving a logic-based assumption. There's no point just picking the highest one because you think that that's going to that's gonna soothe your ego and, and you've got to try and derive what is the, the practical, realistic and most likely truth out of all of this. And as I'll say it again, that beauty or value is in the eye of the beholder in many of these cases. And so up to you to try and unlock, the, unlock what that is. Yeah, and the danger, while that gives you an impression, and I'll, I'll call it an impression, mm-hmm. those, those lagging indicators that you've spoken about, it's yep. the leading indicators, and you touch very briefly on days on market. And that's mm-hmm. more a leading indicator, and there are a bunch of others that are going to start communicating what the future is going to be rather than what's, what's happened in the past. Mm-hmm. But, but you need to start somewhere. So, uh, yeah, no, beautifully said, mate. So, uh, let, let's move on now to uh, the next reason why I'm hearing people saying, no, I've, I've just, I'm not comfortable. And that revolves around this idea of location misinformation. And the thing I constantly hear is, but, well, I, I, I don't I have to buy in a capital city to get the growth. So let, let's really, we've touched on this already, but let's let's dig in there, mate. Yeah, I, I love this one, right? Because it's a big myth that everyone thinks that you have to just buy in capital cities and capital cities all go up and everything like that. And I want to point out that I'm not opposed to capital cities, right? I love mm. it, right? So, um, you know, I live in Sydney. I think it's a great city. I've lived in Melbourne. I think it's a great city. All of that kind of stuff. I'm location agnostic. I don't care, right? All I want to do is I want to find the locations that are going to perform the best for ourselves and our clients. That's the premise. Now, um, yep. the chart we've got here at the moment shows um, the, the the average median house price in, in capital cities across Australia from 2001 to 2021. And anyone looking at this screen will see that it's a jumbled mess of squiggly lines all moving in slightly different directions at different times times and doing all kinds of stuff. Sometimes they go up and sometimes they go down and sometimes they go sideways. And sometimes when some are going up, others are going down. And when others are going down, others are going up. And so the point the point with this chart is just a reminder that all markets move asynchronously. They don't move together. Like It's not like, hey, property markets go, go up, therefore all capital cities go up. Some will go up. Some will not go up, and this is this is how this is the way of the world. And they're all driven. It's because they're all driven by different things. Some are more driven by financial markets. Some are more driven by commodities. Some are more driven by technology. Some are more driven by. There's all kinds of different stuff. Um, so that's the point of this one is just to say, well, hang on a second. Capital cities don't always go up as well, right? So sometimes there is a time and a place to buy in a capital, but we need to think about it a little differently. Yeah, it's spot on. No, very well said. So, and, and sort of uh, aggregating that a little bit in terms of mm. the regional markets' uh, performance against the capitals. Uh, yeah, again, a great graph that, that we're looking at here. But uh, talk us through for those that are, are just listening in. Totally. So, most people, and I think fair enough, think that capital cities over the long run perform better than regionals, and I can understand why people think that. 
and it seems very um, contrarian to say that the opposite may be true. But the graph we've got on the screen at the moment shows month-on-month change in dwelling values between May 2016 and May 2021. So it's a decent chunk of time. And it covers not just the COVID period, but also pre-COVID and all of that kind of stuff, right? Yep. It shows the combined regionals versus the combined capitals. And what you'll see by looking at this graph is that for very frequent and elongated periods, regional markets outperformed capital city markets, notably between September 2017 all the way through to May 2019, and then through May 2020 uh, up to you know you know basically the start of this year where they started to sort of reach the sort of same levels. Now the point of, the point about that is is it's not intermittent. It is systemic, and it happens over elong- elongated period of, periods of time. And I think that if people can start to understand that, it hopefully might change their view to understand that there are massive opportunities for growth outside the capitals and not just because of COVID, but because of a multitude of different reasons. You know, the, the fact that governments are pushing infrastructure, uh, you know, externally, all of different kind of decentralization plans, all kinds of stuff. Well, and, and you, you, let's reinforce that again because w- what we've seen with COVID is an, is a paradigm shift. This is not a, a temporary manoeuvre. This is a paradigm shift to lifestyle, to safety, security, and to space. Mm-hmm. And we saw exactly the same thing happen in the uh, early 1900s when the Spanish flu went through. We had this massive decentralisation at that point in time. It was just at the point when they were really starting to collect uh, and aggregate property records. And we saw a similar situation happen at, at, at that point. So uh, for those that think, oh, this is just an aberration, you know, we've seen people jump out in the regions, but as soon as things get right again, they'll all be flooding back to the cities. No, I don't think so. I think each and every one of us have appreciated the lifestyle benefits of working from home. And if that working from home is in a bigger space with a, with a, a regional city that has all the lifestyle factors that has the technology supporting it, then this is going to be an ongoing trend, not just a temporary manoeuvre. Yeah, totally. I'd put a caveat on that um, in the sense that some locations where people have flocked to just for lifestyle that, again, are not underpinned by the right fundamentals, they probably will recede, right? No, good call. Yeah, so again, again, what we're talking about is some, some some locations are booming, but they're booming in a way that is not sustainable and it's likely to be a blip, like a bit of a sugar hit. And yep. other areas are booming because they are solid, solidly underpinned by fundamentals and would, regardless of any kind of COVID shift and all of that kind of stuff, be booming anyway because that the, what's going on there started well before you know January 2020. And that, I think that's a really interesting thing. And it's, this graph illustrates that beautifully in the fact that you know there are significant and sustained periods of times where regionals actually outperform the capitals. Now, again, yeah. sometimes, sometimes capitals outperform regionals. Yeah. And, and the point is that it's not a debate about one of these is better than the other, right? Because I believe that there is a time and a place for all kinds of assets and all kinds of locations in your portfolio, but it's to try and dispel the myth that you have to choose, that it only happen, you only get growth in the capitals and you can get a lot more growth in, in a lot of times outside of the capitals. And I agree. And, and the, the good news here is that from a regional perspective, you're coming off, generally coming off a lower price base. So it's actually easier to achieve a higher percentage growth on a mm. lower cost base than it is buying a million dollar property in one of the capital cities. Totally. So uh, no, that's, that's uh, beautifully said, mate. Uh, so uh, 
just to further extend that, uh, you've mm. got another graph here that that looks at the regional markets, um, yeah. uh, our performance over capitals uh, on a yield basis. Talk us through that. Totally. So, Bushy, one of the things you always talk about, you know, is affordable growth, right? And I couldn't agree with it more. Affordable growth is buying assets that are going to grow well because that's where we build all our wealth, right? Is in the capital growth, but yep. doing it in a way in a way that is financially sustainable. So either neutrally or positively geared or positive cash flow, so yep. that you don't have a cash flow deficit week in week out. Now, this is one of the biggest reasons that most people don't achieve success in property is because they don't understand this. Now. So what we're talking about there is gross rental yields. Like that's the key indicator of revenue that's being generated relative to the property price and relative typically to the um, total quantum of debt that you have on the property as well. Now, it's probably yep. not a surprise to people, but it's an interesting way. To, it's an interesting graph to look at that the combined regionals, the co- yield in the combined regional centres is 4.7% versus yep. a combined capitals of 3.3%. Now, again... When you're combining capitals and regionals, it is does skew it a little bit because here in here in Bondi, the the yield is 1.8 percent, and on, there's plenty of regionals where we're buying with a median is six percent. But yeah. looking at that, looking at that differentiation, it's still a pretty wide gap. Yeah, it is a wide gap, and and the difference in you know 1.3 percent different in the yield has a massive impact on the cash flow of the of the property, even oh, at those levels. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like that could be the that could be the difference between or that would be definitely the difference between it being cash flow positive or producing a significant amount of cash flow or not, right? So spot um, on. Yeah, and there's yeah. one more. There's one more graph just on yield as well, which I thought was really interesting as well. And this looks at um, this looks at the rolling annual growth in the hedonic rental index, and so this looks at the cha- the the rate of change in rents you know, between the between the two areas now. What you'll notice is that between April 2020 and April 2021, yeah, yields of generally speaking in capitals and regionals are shooting up, but uh, regionals is accelerating at a much faster rate. And that, and again, that actually tracks back. That actually tracks back to April 2017. And so, what we'll, what this illustrates is a systemic non-COVID related shift to the regions that is driven and underpinned by you know societal and social capital changes. That has been yes accelerated by COVID, um, but it's not it's not caused right. So not caused by COVID. And so what we see here is that um, in April 2021, you know we've got 9.6 percent growth in uh, rental rent in the rental market happening in regional centres, and uh, compared to only 3.3 percent growth in the in the combined capitals. Um, so so that, again, nearly a nearly a three three times the growth in the combined regions versus the capitals. Exactly, and so the key, the the key secret to you know building a property portfolio fast, sustainably, safely, risk averse, all of that kind of stuff is to get growth and cash flow. And so once you start looking at this these combinations, it's a very it's a very attractive proposition to start thinking. Okay, well now now might be a perfect time to start investing in regional centres. Yeah, spot on, and, and you're absolutely right around COVID. Uh, uh, all COVID has done is thrown petrol on the fire that was that was already burning. So yep. uh, yeah, no, it's an important point. Okay, so the the next major objection that I'm hearing is you know revolves around this the the comfort zone exercise. So mm. you know the old issue of I'm I'm not comfortable buying a property in a state or sight unseen unless I've actually physically seen it, touched it, smelled it. Uh, what's your response to that one? 
I think this is a great one. I love this one, right? Because uh, obviously we come across this, uh, uh, not to poke fun at anyone in particular in the country, but it tends to be people from Victoria that have got this mindset. I got to, I, I just, just stating facts, tends to be two people from Victoria. I'm from Victoria, right? But I don't know what it is, but it always seems to be people in Victoria that have got this viewpoint that they need to be able to drive to the property. And I often ask, well, why? Like, what for? They're like, well, what if something breaks? You know, what if the, what if the sewage overflows? And I said, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to go there and clean it up? And they said, well, no. So, well, what would you do? They said, well, I don't know. We'd, we'd call someone. So, well, you call your property manager, right? You'd get the property manager to sort that out. Unless, you, unless you're really passionate about becoming a full-time property manager, which most people aren't, right? Unless your career passion is to become a property manager, in which case, just change your career and go get a job as a property manager, right? <laughs> unless that. That is, yeah, yeah, exactly. All power to you. Like, love property managers, not for me, all good. Um, yeah, unless that's your desire, then I think you're creating a rod for your own back. And and when people think about it logically, I think they can understand that, no, they don't want to be getting the phone call at one in the morning. They're not going to go there. And I often say to people as well, like, what are you going to do? You're going to go around and peek through the curtains like a creep? Like, what are, you, <laughs> what, are you, what are you planning on doing? Why does it need to be nearby? You know, I think most people logically understand that it doesn't make sense, but this is more of a mental. Uh, this is more of a mental exercise, right? And well, I would say to people, yeah, go on. Yeah, I, I, there's an important distinction here too uh, between uh, and being an investor and creating a second job when you buy a property. Mm. They're, they're two very different things. Now, for me, if I'm an investor, my assumption is that time is my most important ingredient in all of this. So your your role as an investor is to surround yourself with the best prop possible professionals are going to look after you and, are, and are way better than you are at the, the various elements of it. All you need to do is manage them. And if you're doing that, then, uh, and you're focusing on the property is actually just being a vehicle for growth, not, not just focusing on the property itself. Mm. And all of a sudden uh, you're, you're not restricted to what's in your own backyard. And, you know, again, I've done some numbers on this goose. Mm. Uh, the difference in a, buying something in your backyard and, and I, being an Adelaide and I had a, had a look at this a while back where I compared uh, what sort of growth you could get in Adelaide versus what you might be able to get somewhere else. And, and yeah. a 3% three differential in the growth rate over 20 years on a $400,000 property equates to about $800,000 of extra equity, which is 75% higher than what you'd achieve if you stuck to your backyard. So there's a you know if you're a serious investor and this is about building your nest egg, then don't put the blinks blinkers in and limit yourself. Become borderless because you're really missing out on a massive opportunity if you do that. Totally. I mean, it's not it's not inconceivable that you might happen to live at the right place at the right time to be buying. Yeah, good point. It's just- it's Good just point. it's just statistically improbable. <laughs> That's yeah. the point. Is it in fifteen thousand two hundred sixty four suburbs? It is you are you are phenomenally more likely to just walk down the street and the first person you see randomly say hello to them and they'll have the same birthday as you. You're way more likely for that to happen. Right? <laughs> so. <laughs> 
and I often say to people, you know, when they're like, oh, but, but I've got to go, it's an asset. I've got to see it and touch it. And I say, most people have got shares or at least they understand the concept of it. And I say, well, how many times have you visited your shares? Oh, well, well, no. It's like, you got shares in BHP. Have you gone to BHP head office and interviewed the CEO to make sure he's the, he's the right guy for you? Like, probably, probably not, right? So it's shifting this from, because um, people, you kind of touched on it, I think, at the start where people have got this idea of, House, houses, right, as these things that they live in and they're so accustomed to it being around them that the idea of converting that thinking as a mental model to an investment has got nothing to do with your home. That's a real hard shift for people. And so people will be yeah. like, Bob, what would it be like if I lived there and I need to walk through it and, you know, is the bathroom where I want it? And uh, maybe the backyard is not big enough for kids or, uh, well, actually, sorry, you're thinking about it completely wrong. What you want to look at is it's a financial tool. And yes, I believe that every that every investor has an obligation to provide a good quality product for their clients. And, a, and an investor's client is a tenant, right? Like yep. any business owner, you should provide a great service to your clients and build and build a business um, based on based on good quality service, right? So I yep. believe that that is true. But also by the same token, you need to be shifting your mindset away from, um, you know, this 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 kind of physical asset and more into a financial instrument. You know? Yeah, well, that, and the, the way I like to describe it, Goose, is they the the houses are, are merely money boxes in the shape of a house. Yeah, and yeah. and that's how you got to look at it. It's, it. it's the numbers that are important here. And I often say, if if kebabs were giving me better growth and a better yield than houses, I'd invest in kebabs. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't that's care funny. what the vehicle is. It's it's all about generating the the wealth that I need and creating the affordability while I'm holding on to it to achieve my life lifestyle goals long term. Totally, I always think about it like a little like a restaurant or something like that. Like you buy a piece of dirt and plonked on top of it, you've got basically a Macca's, except this Macca's sells sleeping solutions. <laughs> you know, so. Um, <laughs> But the big thing for people to get, like, it's very hard for people to get over, like, this idea that they might not be able to go there, you know, and physically see it and everything like that. And there's some pretty simple things, and we'll kind of dig into this in a minute because I think it's a really interesting mindset shift that people need to go through. And ultimately, if you've got the right team around you and you do the right due diligence and you do things like pre-purchase inspections and building and pest inspections and pre-settlement inspections, and if needs be, you can get video walkthroughs and you know, we're in a day, day and age where, you know, I can tell my parents what's ripe in their veggie garden by going on satellite, satellite imagery, right? It's so good. So <laughs> so one of the reasons that people often cite that, but you have to go to the property, right? You have to walk into the backyard. What if you walked in the backyard and there was like a high voltage power line over the back? Imagine if you didn't see that. It's like, well, you can just jump on Google Maps, right? And you can see yep. that. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. Yep. So all of this stuff can be done remotely. And um, just to echo your your um, the figures and stuff you put around this, but don't make the mistake of buying in your own backyard just because it's something you know. Like it, it is highly statistically improbable that you're going to be making the best investment decision and it's, and it's much more likely you're going to be making an emotional decision. Yeah, spot on, spot on. Okay, yeah. So I'm going to carry this yeah. on. Yeah, so I'm going to carry on from this this point, right? Because I think what's happening at the moment is that there's a shift, right? So yeah. interesting, interestingly, so from when they invented the the car in you know the 20s, right? It took yep. the automobile and tractor nearly 50 years <laughs> to dislodge the horse and cart from farms and public transport and wagon delivery systems throughout North America. It's a really interesting, um, there's a really interesting study on on and book on this that is uh, really fascinating. The yep. reason for it, the reason for it, isn't because cars didn't work, right? It's because most people didn't understand how combustion engines worked. 
Therefore, they couldn't make sense of why it went, and they were inherently afraid of change, right? Yeah. Now, this is this is this is this example underpins where we're currently at. You know, in the world is shifting, technology is shifting, and our minds need to shift with it as well. We're currently living in the fourth industrial revolution, the information age, and so with the tools at our disposal, the connectivity to uh, tools at our disposal, the connectivity that we have, the opportunities that we've got, the data we can get access to, all of this kind of stuff. I just implore people, don't let your past beliefs stand in the way of your future opportunities. Yeah, extremely well said, mate. Extremely well said. And the hard thing, the hard thing I think for, for people, though, is that it is outside the comfort zone. And you, Bushy, you'll know how this goes as well for yourself. But outside of your comfort zone is literally where all the magic happens. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter whether it's like I want to get fit or I want to go and ask you know, that girl or boy out for a date for the first time or uh, I want to learn how to salsa dance, right? To do any of these things, you have to get outside your comfort zone and that's where all the good stuff happens. Well, I often say to people, uh, unless you're feeling uncomfortable, you're not growing, you're not learning. Totally. That's Yeah. I I couldn't agree more. Jump on the next slide because that actually points that out exactly, right? And this is, this is exactly what you were just saying there. If you are in your comfort zone, you're feeling unsafe and in control, right? But in order to get to the growth zone, which is where you'll find your purpose, live your dreams, set new goals, realize your aspirations, live the life that you desire, you have to pass through two other zones, right? You have to go through the fear zone. Oh, my God. I don't know what's going on. I think I might die. This is hard. This is terrible. Help. And then you go to the learning zone of like, oh, hang on a second. I'm not dead yet. What's going on here? Can I make sense of it? And that's where you start to turn those challenges into skills and to do all that kind of stuff and, and you start to evolve. And then once you start to, once you then normalize on that, you move then through to the growth zone. That's where the magic happens. That's where it is. And so if you can apply that, that four-phase thinking in your life in every area, you're going to be much better off. Yeah, beautifully said, mate. Yeah, awesome. So uh, let's move now to the next next reason we're hearing why people don't want to buy property, mm. and that revolves around the whole do-it-yourself exercise. And I, and I constantly hear this. Uh, you know, I'm, I've, I've been a, a big advocate for buyers' agents for a long time, but I continuously uh, have challenges convincing people of the, the cost hurdle that they perceive in their head in terms of, you know, I, I often get this comment, oh, yeah, that, that's all good. I know they'll do a good job, but I just can't justify paying a buyer's agent 15 grand or more for something that I can actually go out and do myself. But what's, yeah. what's your thoughts around that? Well, let's jump into it because there's a couple of slides that I think will point this out, right? So th- it's a great question, all right? Uh, and fundamentally, I say this to people all the time, anyone can go buy a house, right? <laughs> anyone can go buy a house. You got the money? Go buy it. Just like... And just like this guy on the screen, screen, most people do. They end up just, you know, basically grabbing a dart and flicking at a map of Australia and going, well, I don't know, because they don't really know how to do the research. So yeah. they, they, they've got a lot of cognitive bias. Maybe they've heard a media article and they find all these different reasons to validate what they're eating, maybe buying in their own backyard or, you know, trying to catch the latest trend. They don't really know what they're doing, right? Yeah. Um, and so when you're talking about buying, you know, real estate, 
you know, assets, it's not a cheap exercise, right? You're buying hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of uh, of, of asset and you want that to perform well. And, you know, if you're talking 15, 16, 17, 18, whatever it is to, to work with a professional that is going to be able to help you through it, the quantum in terms of what that relates to over even a five-year period is, is minute if it helps you to get to where you want to go. Now, I'll put a caveat on this. Um, I would say that local area experts are probably not great for investors, but they are great for homeowners, right? Yeah. And yep. so if you're if you're a homeowner and you want to live in a specific area, then you know there's 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 an argument to say that finding the local area expert is going to be to your advantage. Right? Yeah, and my dogs agree with you, mate. So uh, <laughs> my apologies to the listeners. Uh, we've just we've just had someone. Uh, Delivering some stuff at the office, and I've got my two sandwiches uh, doing their thing, mate. So they're it's great. In. It gives a texture. It gives a texture. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I would say for most investors, you know, like what you're not what you're looking for is is not someone who's a local area expert because they might try and find you the best opportunity in that location. But say that location is the, is the right is the right thing for you. So, um, just hit the next slide because most um most property investors, what they do is they go, well, I don't want to pay somebody else. Surely I can just cruise around on realestate.com and domain. And ultimately, unless you already have worked out what to buy, where to buy, when to buy, and why, you're going to be probably fishing in the wrong pond, right? And this is evidenced by uh, just on the next on the next slide, Bushy. You know, this this comes through in the in the in the numbers, right? This isn't just an opinion. This isn't. You know, for those of you who are listening, in case you don't know, we run a property investment company. We help we help investors to buy to buy investment properties, right? So this is what we do. Yeah. Now. I'm not saying this because it's in my personal best interest for everyone to go and start paying professionals for help. But the big problem is that it, that, that it, in actuality, you know, 71% of property investors never get past one rental property yeah. and a further 19% never get past two. So that's combined 90%. 90% of property investors never get past two properties. So yeah. given that most people believe that I know what I'm doing. Surely there's not much to it. I can just go do it myself. If that were true, then surely we would see more people breaking through that two-property barrier. But unfortunately, the evidence is in that suggests that, in fact, and this might be tough for people to hear, they don't know what they're doing. Right? Well, it's, it's, it's worse than that, actually, because there's another, another uh, stat that's quite revealing in that regard, and that is that 54% of first-time investors sell the property within the first five years. And uh, if, you, if you combine the number of properties they accumulate and the ones that exit early, it's because they've generally bought the wrong property in the wrong location at the wrong time with the wrong team. And then and they only focus on the property and it's generally in their backyard. And when it all gets too hard and it's costing them money and they're spending their nights and weekends changing, changing washers and, and fixing taps, uh, they, they throw it all away as a bad thing, lose money, and then never return. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, you're absolutely right. The evidence is really demonstrating that if you're going to try and do is, do this yourself, and and by the way, I tried to early on. I didn't trust anyone, Goose, when I first started investing in property. I tried to reinvent the wheel, and I learned some very expensive lessons mm-hmm. early on. 
until I was bright enough to wake up to the fact that I needed to be the dumbest person in the room and that my time was better spent building my business and and putting my free time into my friends and family and letting get, surrounding myself with experts who who had the knowledge, were active investors themselves, were independent of each other and therefore could come up with property uh, opportunities and property solutions that were far in advance of what I could ever do on my own. Yeah, and to, to be completely transparent, like the real estate industry doesn't have a great track record, you know, and there are a lot, it's understandable that people don't necessarily have a lot of trust because they feel like when they go and speak to a real estate agent, they're just trying to get sold something. And they have people who purport to be property investment advisors and they're really just selling stuff too. They're selling developments and whatever, but they've all got a hidden agenda to try and sell something. And yeah. I think that that's, that's, where a lot, and that's where a lot of people go wrong is that they think that they're, they're being pitched something. I mean, I can't talk for other businesses and organizations, but what we do, like we don't, we don't take any commissions, kickbacks, referrals, nothing from anyone. It is 100% driven around how do we help people go from, you know, often zero or one uh, rental property, uh, getting into that, that top 1% of, you know, five, six, six uh, investment properties and more so that they can achieve their financial goals faster. Cause that's what's, that's where the rewarding bit happens. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it, in sort of uh, reinforcing that that point as well, mm. uh, if you are trying to do this yourself, you just don't know what you don't know. I, I was making mistakes that I didn't even know I was making because I just had, didn't have the knowledge and I didn't have the expertise to be able to to thread that needle. So uh, it, it's certainly really important. And I, I think something we should reinforce at this point, Goose, is that both uh, what – I and my business does the know-how team, and and you and the mm. Dash Dot team do is we're actually sitting on the the investor side of the table, not on the yep. other side of the table. And and you know, you and I have had a, a recent example where uh, we've been through the process with with the client. We've found a property that looked like it hit the mark, but as soon as we found something that that uh, wasn't ticking the boxes, pull the pin, walk away, and we we Chuck keep looking. Chuck it so, in the bin. Yep, exactly right. And, and that, that's the, an important distinction. If you want an expert on your team who gives you an extra set of eyes, ears, arms, and legs to one, find the right opportunity and then oversee it, coordinate it, and keep all of the other players that who do have a vested interest honest, then engaging uh, a buyer's agent, a property strategist, and a good independent savvy mortgage broker are really important parts of making that happen. 100%. Yeah, beautifully 100%. said. And okay. just, just a just a just a final point, just to wrap that up. Like, just to, just to back up that evidence and everything we talked about. It DIY investors are the ones who get stuck, right? Yeah. The, the really sad part about that is, I just want to point this out: that I have never met a property investor who isn't investing because they want more freedom. They all want more freedom. They want more. They want to be able to live life on their own terms, do what they want, when they want, with who they want. That usually comes down to having some kind of income replacement strategy and all of this kind of stuff. Now. I haven't seen a case so far. Maybe you might be able to correct me if I'm wrong, but I haven't seen anyone be able to achieve that goal on one or two properties, right? No. no. Uh, the the prevailing logic or the prevailing, you know, wisdom or whatever is that you'd probably need around five properties, broadly speaking, but you know, give or take. Uh, and the sad thing is that people invest in property and they hope and pray and scrimp and save for 30 years, hoping that this is going to deliver them to the promised land and only to find that they they, well, they get stuck at two and they never get past it, so they never achieve their goals. Professional, inve- 
professional investors, the ones who take it seriously and say, no, 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 like I'm going to treat this like a business and like any other, you know, serious part of my life. They build a team of experts so they don't get stuck. Yeah. And the the important thing to uh, reinforce that point is uh, start with the end in mind. It's not it's not actually about the number of properties. It's the asset size and the growth rate that's going to apply to that, right. and then the affordability of holding that asset while it increases in value. So you know when we talk about sort of three to five properties as being likely to be what's going to affect you mm. uh, and, and and achieve your goals, we, we and we're talking a fifteen to twenty year timeline to make that happen. That becomes fairly achievable to create an estate that's going to give you a, a you know better than comfortable income to then survive on long term. But you're right, uh, one or two generally, depending on how much you're paying on them, is very unlikely to be able to deliver the sorts of results that you need to attain and then sustain your lifestyle long term. Totally. Brilliantly said. Okay. Well, we're on to the last one. Uh, you know, the, the other exercise that we can't constantly hearing now is revolves around the economy and and particularly with COVID. So, you know, we've sort of had this roller coaster ride with COVID. Uh, we're sort of now back into these instant reactionary uh, rolling lockdowns that we're seeing. And the comment that I constantly get is, you know, the ongoing COVID lockdowns are, are going to trigger a recession. So I'll just sit out and sit on my savings until we're actually clear of COVID and and we we, we know what we're doing. But what's, what's your response to that? Well, you know, I think it's a really interesting one because we've just been through a recession, right? So everyone's worried like, ah, maybe we're going to go into a recession again. We were just in a recession. And, um, you know, I was one of the few people, and I'm not trying to grandstand or anything like that, but I was one of the few people back back in March in 2020, I was saying, hang on a second, this is going to be bumpy, but this is an opportunity, right? And I think now everyone... Yeah, yeah, totally. And everyone's everyone now is like, oh my god, property prices are booming. Now, if you knew what you knew now at the start of 2020, how many properties would you have bought then? Right, you would have been going for gold. And I, the same, it's the same, it's the same kind of situation. Um, so I actually, I actually wrote a uh, report in March or actually April last year called uh, "Property Investing in Economic Downturns," which analysed the history of our recessions and the impact on Australian real estate. So I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um, in fact, we actually stopped buying properties for our clients. I said to all of our clients, we're not buying anything until I can confidently say that we're going to be doing the right thing. And then I basically turned everything off and I studied and I tried to work it out what was going on. And what I found was that there's actually a lot more to it. And there is, there's a lot more upside that's coming through on the back end of this than there is potential risk and downside. Um, you know, that, and that's evidenced by the fact on the, on the next slide as well, if you just go back to the, if we look at the 1990-1991 recession, right, uh, this is again an example of asymmetry in different markets, right? So I'm absolutely not suggesting that all property markets are going to go up, right? No. I'm not, I'm not someone who, I am not the kind of person who sits there and says property is always good, never loses value. It only goes up in value. You just buy a property left, right, and center. No, it's about being intelligent and smart. It's about understanding what drives markets, when, what markets are going to move, and why. And yeah. so, you know, this if we had a, we had a, had the reset the recession we had to have back in 1990 and 1991. Now, I don't know about you, Bushy, but I was, I was still watching cartoons back then. <laughs> no, I actually, I actually just came through the seventeen uh, percent uh, interest rate period just prior to that, mate. So, uh, yeah. unfortunately, I'm showing a bit more grey hair. <laughs> but, but your point is absolutely spot on, mate. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. And now the point that I want to make with this is that, you know, yes, maybe maybe we will go into another technical recession, right? But that's okay. You know, it's not the world's not going to end. The sky's not going to fall. And if you look at the graph on the on the screen at the moment, you'll notice that uh, even in the 1990, the 91 recession, Brisbane made massive gains when Melbourne lost value, right? So to the point that some areas are going to grow, and it's about identifying the right areas, not just blanketing and saying. Yeah, all property is bad. Spot on. And, and, and to sort of emphasize that point, I'm, I'm a bit of a contrarian and, and always have been because mm. uh, I think it, it's periods of greatest change that create the greatest opportunity. And uh, to illustrate that, uh, the first thing that uh, my good wife, Sonia, and I did when the GFC hit was jump on a plane and went to the States. And we traveled the East Coast and the West Coast. We spent three months over there. Uh, buying property because we knew that it was going to be at a generational low mm. and all the property needed to do was recover to its its pre-GFC period and we'd, we'd done very, very well as a consequence. So uh, the, the, the key here is to actually uh, providing the access to money is there and, and I've got to underline this. I, we mentioned this earlier, but it, it is the flow of money and the access to credit that fuels or lubricates the transaction. So providing the uh, central banks, the government and the banks themselves aren't pulling on the, uh, the uh, putting the foot on the brake in terms yeah. of access to the finance, then you're likely, everything else being equal, to see mm. property values rise. And, and there's a big mistake in correlating what's happening at the economic level with what's happening at the property asset level. Mm. They, they're, they're often uh, asymmetric, as, you, as you've uh, uh, spoken there in terms of the locational exercise. A very similar yeah. thing happens in, in that regard as well. So, uh, yeah, point well made there, mate. Um, totally. Let's- and, but into, into your point there, because you, you talk about government and access to credit and all of that kind of stuff, and 100%, 100% agree with you. Like the, the single biggest... Uh, potential throttle break, whatever, is in fact access to credit. It's not yes. even interest rates, right? So no. interest rates can interest rates go up and down. And you talk about the 17% interest rate period, property prices went up by about 30%, you know, like yep. it's not actually interest rates, it's access no. to credit. Totally. Right. And that, this is the really interesting and important thing to understand. So at the moment, yes, interest rates are really low, but that, and that's good, right? But you've also got other factors that are driving the market and driving, hopefully driving inflation. I say hopefully because inflation is a good thing. And that's underpinned by the fact there's six over now over $600 billion worth of government uh, infrastructure spending, quantitative easing, grants, all of these kind of things. Now, to put that in context, during the GFC, that you know we were one of the only countries that didn't you know go into recession during the GFC, we spent $52 billion. This is $600 billion, right? So yep. in the report... In the report that I did on the uh, property investing and economic downturns, I talked about the um, the velocity of money theory. And so, what's actually happening right now is the liquidity is getting pushed through our economic system, just like just yep. like something pumping through our veins, working its way through the system, and it always ends up back in property in Australia. So, yep. so. This is this is underpinning what will be a significant uplift for probably the next few years. And in fact, if you jump onto the next slide, Bushy, yeah, just, um, just, just, yeah, just on, while sorry. we're talking about that as well, something that's really worth reinforcing. Yeah, you know, when, when we're talking about government spend, uh, the RBA governor has repeatedly said that the government will do whatever it takes 
to make sure that we don't see a uh, property downturn. Why is that? Because the reality is that over 54% of the average family's wealth is tied up in their home. So uh, with with that background and that backdrop and that that view from government to continue to make sure that property is protected, it's going to underpin. And, and they've got a lot, lot of levers now, like, like you mentioned, not interest rates anymore. There used to be one big, big hammer that used to be interest rates. And, uh, you, you know, it's like a tap. You turn turn the interest rates up or down. Now, now it's a, like a combination lock. They've got a whole series of levers through macro prudential interventions and bank policies mm-hmm. that they can dial up and dial down the, the access to credit that will continue to monitor and have an impact on what's happening in terms of property values is concerned. Totally. But you've got to remember as well that the reason that they would do that is, is because house prices might become unaffordable, but because yeah. interest rates are low, affordability is really high. Yeah, now, spot on. Now, this is an interesting one, Bushy, and I don't know whether you uh, are aware of the 18.6-year 18, economic cycle. Yep. Is, uh, Really awesome book uh, by Philip J. Anderson called The Real, uh, Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking. Now, that kind of illustrates, it looked at 200 years of you know, uh, economic property share market data in UK, US, and Australia. And the theory is there's an 18.6-year econo- economic cycle. Now, um, I've done a lot of independent research into it, and it does ju- seem to generally correlate with where we currently are at right now. And um, so where we are right now looks to be in a mid-cycle dip. So we had a bit of a recovery phase, COVID hit, we went into recession, a bit of economic turbulence. Now, when you then look at loose fiscal policy, $600 billion of uh, you know of liquidity pumping through the economic veins of the country, plus yep. you've got plus you've got societal change, because that's what is also one of the key catalysts that you must have. Yep. What that does is that pushes the economy once you, once once people start spending money um, and they stop saving it, yeah, the velocity of money increases. That pushes yep. into an explosive phase of growth. Now we have seen this before. Last time we saw it was uh at basically in the two thousands, right? So not just a little over eighteen years ago. Yep. Um, just coming, just in you know the early two thousands when it started. That was the last time we saw one of these explosive phases, and it looks like we're in for that again. Now, what that says, gen- broadly speaking, and this isn't like a you've got a stopwatch on it. Broadly speaking, it would appear uh, and seem to make sense as well, based on current prevailing economic conditions, that we've got a good five, six, seven years of upward trending strong growth in you know in the property market sector. Yeah, spot on. And, and I mean, th- this mirrors very much the same sort of approach that Ray Dalio uh, has adopted yeah. in looking at what's happening uh, at the economic area and in the investment markets. So it, it, it very much lines up with exactly that explanation. So, yeah, yeah that, that makes sense. So, uh, talk to us about um, the oh, this- uh, you know, sort of just reinforcing then in, in that context uh, the asynchronicity that that's occurs totally. across locations. A hundred percent, because it's just a reminder that some areas are going to boom, some areas are not going to boom, and in fact, some of the areas that are boom are going to overboom. <laughs> yeah, right. They're yeah. going to overboom. They're going to overshoot it, right? And they'll become they'll become overvalued compared to their intrinsic value, which we talked about earlier in this, and they will revert back to the mean. Okay, but 
Not all markets are going to do that. And it's about being a diversified investor and understanding that all markets move asynchronously and to position yourself in a way that is going to benefit from all different market cycles over a longer period of time. Yeah, yeah, be- beautifully said. Yeah, and here again, it's just a just another reminder that you know we're talking about the recession and all of these other major threat events that happened. You know, going back to where we started this, things like GFC, September 11, Asian financial crisis, none of those stopped the continuous upward trend of of the real estate market. Spot on, and I, and, and and just to reinforce a key point and, and a key indicator, because people are always asking me, how long is this boom going to last? And and I say to them, well, how long is a piece of string? But the, the, the one major leading indicator I will be keeping an eye on in terms of uh, tapering or dampening will be any substantial macro potential plays by uh, the RBA and the banks mm. at the first level. And, and that will, that's, that's going to be more a tamper. Once, once they do start playing with interest rates, uh, that's when we're likely to see an across-the-board calming of the jets. Uh, so they are the things that I will be looking out for. But the uh, if we, we're looking at the, the current indicators of where that may move, it's unlikely to see uh, any movement in that at least for the next two or three years. And uh, I would suggest uh, way beyond that, given mm. uh, the continued uncertainty that we're seeing in the marketplace generally. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think we've got somewhere between three and, three and six years uh, ahead of us. Yep, spot on. Okay, awesome. well, uh, that, that was a, a fantastic run through. And as I say, I just really wanted to balance the books in terms of putting some facts in front of people's uh, ears and eyes so that they can make more informed in judgments on what's actually happening rather than the, the fear-based exercise that we're fed in a, in a continuous 24-7 torrent uh, from the mainstream media. Uh, I've said this many times before, uh, be very careful where you get your information. Uh, and one of the biggest things, if you want to be happy in your current uh, life and remove a lot of anxiety, stop watching the news, stop reading the newspaper and focus in on getting your uh, quality information that's giving you the true situation from people in the know. And in that mm. regard, I really want to thank you coming on today, uh, Goose, because the, the depth of analysis that you've done uh, over the years and your ability to read the tea leaves in terms of uh, what's happening justified by, you know, almost algorithm level uh, due diligence is second to none. And uh, I'm, I'm confident that uh, as a consequence of listening to this, people are going to feel uh, much more comfortable about what's happening and clearer on, on where things are at and confident around starting to make decisions and uh, for those that are looking at property and they want to get clarity on their, their strategy, then feel, feel free to reach out to us to put some shape around that. And if you're at the point where you are really wanting to look at the property situation, uh, then uh, Dashdot are really the team that's going to look after you. So any final thoughts on that, Goose? No, mate. I think, I think we've covered it. Un- unsurprisingly, we've made this go for nearly two hours. Oh, good grief. Is that, that the time? You and I are very good at talking, mate. So uh, <laughs> totally. we'll, we'll break it down uh, into chunks uh, as yep. well as the, the long form exercise who, for those who want to hear it. But uh, again, really appreciate you uh, uh, being so generous with your time. I know how busy you and your team are at the moment, given what's happening and, in the marketplace. 
and, so, and, like, and, and, like, and likewise, Bushy, it's, it's great to have these conversations because, you know, there's, there's not many other people that I've found in the industry that, you know, cut through the noise and speak with the logic and clarity that, that you do as well. And so it's refreshing to be able to have these conversations and to be able to present, you know, a good, well-rounded perspective on, you know, what's actually going on and to help people to move forward. And look, to be honest, whether people move forward with, and work with you guys or work with us or whatever, it doesn't matter. Like if someone watches this and gets information and value out of it and it helps them to make a better, a more informed decision and to achieve greater levels of freedom, choice, abundance, prosperity, happiness, and fulfillment, then perfect. Then it's been time well spent. Brilliantly said, and and I I, I have to state the bleeding obvious, but uh, everything that we've spoken about today is not and cannot be interpreted as financial advice. Uh, following on from your point, uh, make sure that you get good independent professional advice mm-hmm. uh, before you make any decisions. So surround yourself with a damn good accountant, a really good savvy uh, investment-focused mortgage broker, uh, a, a good buyer's agent, a great property manager, and then all the other ancillary team members that need to be part of it. But uh, the only thing I want to leave you with is to implore you to do something, to invest in something because the uh, – mistake you make of sitting out and the impact that time is going to have on your lifestyle long-term, I, I can't emphasize how dramatic that's going to be. So if there's only one takeaway from this, it's get invested.